Now we're going to turn to 1 John. We've been going through, for those of you who are visitors, we've been going through this book, uh, 1 John. The reading passage we're going to look at this morning is on page 1,226. Um, 1 John is obviously a, a letter from John. It is written to Christians spread throughout the Mediterranean during the first century, probably written in the years, in the 60s and 70s of that century, and the church, as has always been the case, was facing particular troubles and difficulties, and he now comes on to look at what some of those, uh, what some of those particular difficulties are. So we read in 1 John chapter 2 and at verse 18. 1 John 2 verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who's the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. <laughs> I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to touch you, to teach you rather. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Amen. And again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, there is a, this is a, in a sense, this is a difficult passage, and I imagine, if, if you try and imagine this, coming into this building, knowing nothing about Christianity, and you read about antichrist and anointing and remaining in you and all that kind of stuff, this must seem a different world, a different language. For those of you who are not into computers, it must be like doing, going to a computer geeks club or something and, and just hearing people using all this language. Uh, Antichrist carries all kinds of images. If you're into metal music or rock music, then uh, you will... Uh, there's a familiar cultural aspect to the whole notion of Antichrist. Uh, I remember uh, a band called the Sex Pistols who had a song which began, I am an Antichrist, I am an anarchist and so on. Um, not surprisingly, not understanding at all what uh, Antichrist meant. And I guess that most of us probably would not like to be called uh, Antichrist, the, the, either the Antichrist or an Antichrist. Uh, if you grew up in the 1970s, there was a kind of a phase for a while of films like Rosemary's Baby or Damien and all that kind of stuff. And they used to scare me witless uh, because I grew up in a Christian brethren background as well where I, I knew the number of the beast was 666 and, and so on. And uh, uh, I, was, I heard someone recently 
who was looking at a birth date, date of someone, and they were born on the 6th of the 6th, 1966. Well, that would have freaked me out. You know, and every now and then, just a little bit, the old superstition comes in as the car number goes to 666. You think, okay, now we have the crash. Um, but that whole kind of thing, that's, that's come into our, if you like, our popular mythology. And that's not where we're going this morning, because that's not what this is about. This is about something actually a whole lot more serious. And whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, it is the case that we are in a spiritual battle. The question is not whether we will be involved in, but whose side we are actually on. And that's, that's a difficult one. You can't be neutral in this. You, you, you really just, you're either for Christ or you're against Christ. You're either pro-Christ or you're anti-Christ. And that, that is difficult for people to grasp and to understand. Let me say this if, for those of us who are Christians. I think sometimes we forget that we are serving Christ and we are in a battle. And some of you know this and understand this, <coughs> that we can get so discouraged and we can feel sometimes as though we're going to be defeated. The forces against us seem overwhelming. We fight amongst ourselves. There are false brothers and sisters. People fall away. We're conscious of our own sin. The devil is going around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Sometimes we are just hurt. We are overwhelmed. We are confused. We are struggling. We are tired. We are emotionally exhausted. We, we are like the person who has the poster, you know, cheer up, smile. Things could get worse. So we did cheer up, we did smile, and things did get worse. That seems to be, for some of us, that's what we're at. We're at the end of our tether. And I think it's very, very important for those of us who are Christians to realize we are in a spiritual battle. Without going all the melodramatic route, just to be being honest, your everyday life is a battle. Never mind. I mean, the Apostle Paul, when he was walking through the streets and the woman uh, approached him and she was demon-possessed and she was basically challenging him. Paul didn't say, oh good, another demon to cast out. He just didn't want, he, he wanted out of there. But she kept pestering him and kept bothering him. Most of us are not in a position where we can say, hey, we go around looking for, for demons and so on. We are, we are dealing with our own struggles, dealing, sometimes it's just hard enough to exist, never mind to rejoice and to live in Christ. And the church is, in particular is, is battled, embattled, and uh, sometimes, to be honest, sometimes we are defeated. So we're going to look at that situation because that is the situation that John is writing into. Um, he does say there that it's the last hour. Now, Literally, it's this is last hour. It's not, the, the the is not actually there, and that's normally understood to be it's a period of critical change. There are lots and lots of Christians who speculate and guess when the end times are going to be and when Jesus is going to return and so on. A man called Blakelock says this in commenting on this passage, and I think it's very true. Nothing is so damaging in the study of New Testament prophecy as to imagine that the eternal God who stands above and outside of time is bound by the clocks and calendars of men. You may say you're not superstitious, 
But if you're around in the year 2000, did you really buy into the millennium bug? Did you look and did you say, zero, zero, zero? It's okay, it's gone in Australia, so it's probably going to be all right. When it got to zero, zero, zero in Israel or zero, zero, zero here, we were thinking, whoa, this is, is this the end of, God is not bound by human timetable. And I don't think in the Bible that the Lord gives us a timetable. Bear in mind this, even Jesus didn't know when he would return. Of that hour, neither the Son of Man does not know. He does not know. Now, I think he knows now, but for us to then say, well, we know. So last hour here, what John is referring to is he is saying, this, this is a sense, it's either the last days and the last days last a long time, or he's saying this is a period of critical change. There's something going on here. And I, I think that I want to apply that in our situation and say, yes, we also are in a period of critical change. So we're going to look at, first of all, who the Antichrist is. Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus gives us the promise of the Antichrist. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. The biggest problem with what is called signs and wonders evangelism is that the devil can work signs and wonders. So signs and wonders do not prove whether someone is pro-Christ or not. How can the devil do that? Well, he's a spiritual being. He has spiritual power. We have to be very, very, very careful. That's what Jesus says. He makes it quite explicit. They will perform not just signs and miracles, but great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. I think there are a lot of religious movements, and there are a lot of movements which profess to be Christian, and there's a lot of teaching that goes on in the evangelical church, with which people say, well, there was this sign, there was this wonder, there was this miracle, there was something great that happened, so it must be right. But Jesus warns us, no, no, that that's, is, is, is not the case. I think there is a, a general thing where we say antichrists are people who end up being opposed to the Jesus of the Bible. I love the story. I've told you before of the lady in Lewis who, when the Jehovah's Witnesses came to her door and they said to her, do you believe it's the last times? And she said, yes. And they said, why? And they said, because you're at my door. Uh, in the last days, there will be, in the last days, there will be many antichrists. It was, a, it was an answer I wish I'd thought of. Very smart lady. But as well as being antichrist, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 uh, to 4, there is a specific antichrist. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So generally in the Christian church, people have accepted that there's likely to be one specific antichrist. And over the years, there have been many candidates for that role. I, I, um, there's a comedian called Bill Bailey, and he has a thing where he does the axis of evil, which has Mussolini and Stalin and Hitler and Chris Rea, which is quite interesting. But uh, there are Christian versions of that as well. There are numerous candidates for the antichrist. 
bearing. If you're, in the, if you're in Scotland in the 16th century, then you tended to believe that the Antichrist was the Pope. Um, that sounds ridiculous to most people now, but at the time it seemed quite sensible because he was a man who was setting himself up over the people of God and behaving in a way which was quite contrary to the scriptures and, and, and persecuting Christians. At other times, Napoleon has been called the Antichrist, Hitler the Antichrist, Stalin the Antichrist, Saddam Hussein the Antichrist, and the latest candidate is Barack Obama uh, because uh, I, I think almost every week I get emails. Apparently, 22% of Americans believe that Barack Obama is the Antichrist. What can, you, what can you say without insulting people to, to that? I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous because the thing about the Antichrist is what we come on here. It's, it's not in these political figures. Two things the Antichrist does. First of all, or Antichrists, they deny Christ. They deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. They deny the Father and the Son. They are false Christs and they are also Antichrists. Who is the liar? Verse 22. It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. I've, uh, there's two books. One I've read quite a while ago. One I've read recently. The best book I've read on Jesus in the past 10 years is by Pope Benedict. It's just called Jesus of Nazareth. It is a brilliant book. And with one or two exceptions, such as the small section on Mariolatry, any Protestant should be glad to, to read it. It's a fantastic book about Jesus. I, I've, I underline books and score books, and this one's scored all over the place. Um, so, and he explicitly affirms that Jesus is the Christ. So I know that Pope Benedict is not the Antichrist. Okay, on the other hand, Philip Pullman, his latest book, which I've just read, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. Now, this has got a lot of publicity, deliberately so, um, he puts on the back, this is a story, releases it at Easter, puts out press releases saying how Christians have condemned him to hell and so on. Please don't waste your money on this book. It is, it is for Philip Pullman. Philip Pullman's a great writer, but this is really badly written. And it's absolutely nothing new. Because what Philip Pullman does is he's writing about something that John was writing about almost 2,000 years ago, where people were saying, well, we believe that Jesus was good. He was a good man, but he wasn't the Christ. They tried to split Jesus, the man, from Jesus, who is the Son of God. And that's been going on for over 2,000 years. So in that sense, actually, Philip Pullman is Antichrist because he's teaching against Jesus Christ. Lots of other people, of course, fall into that category as well. They lead away from God. That's what verse 23 says. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. There's a kind of warning here that I would want to give, and it's this, that, and or I think this passage gives, is that we think any belief is better than no belief. So we talk of people of faith. And it's very interesting. I've recently been sent a letter asking, would I be prepared to endorse a campaign to have a place of prayer for people of faith? in Dundee City Centre. What does that mean? Well, I know what it means. It means Christians and Muslims and Hindus and everyone. Does it mean Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses? Baha'i? Moonies? What does it mean? What does people of faith mean? Well, I think that we, we tend 
to say, well, it's better to have some faith than no faith at all. And that's just not true. In fact, if you have no faith at all, you're probably more likely to become a Christian than if you have a false faith. Wrong belief leads us away from God, not to Him. And last night we were visiting our friends in Bingham Terrace, named after one of the Mormon founders. Do you know that the Mormons were stronger here in Dundee than they were in Utah? They existed in Dundee before they existed in Utah. In the 1820s and 1830s, they were an American movement, but for some reason it took hold here. And the Mormons are nice people in many ways. You, you meet the Mormons, um, you can tell when they come, they haven't worshipped with us for a while, but occasionally when they come to worship, the young men with Elder Smith, and my favorite was Elder Berry, uh, <laughs> in, in the, with the black, the black suits and so on, and, and they're, they're, they are you know, family-orientated people. There's a lot of things that, you know, the Mormons aren't evil people walking around with horns and so on. But their belief is wrong and it leads away from God. In 1823, a man called Joseph Smith met an angel called Moroni who showed him gold plates on a hill near Palmyra in New York State. This was apparently written in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, which doesn't exist, by the way, but never mind. It was written in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, which he was able to read because the angels gave him a pair of magical glasses. When he read this, America was not discovered by Columbus, but by a Jewish prophet called Lehi 600 years before Christ. And when Christ rose from the dead, he went to America. Now, there's no point in us saying, well, actually, Mormons are nice people. They may well be. But this belief is nonsense. It is nonsense that leads people away from Christ. And for us to turn around and say, well, we're all people of faith and we all ought to worship together. No. You don't, I would say, but we're all going to God. Well, what about Islam? You're saying that. No, I'm not putting Islam on a par with Mormonism at that level. In some sense, Islam is worse. And I'll tell you why. Because Islam says that you can know God without Jesus. In fact, it specifically says that if we affirm that Jesus is the, is, is the Son of God, then we are condemned. But what we are told here is no one who denies the Son has the Father. You can't do that. The only way to come to God is through Jesus. Without a right view of the Son, we cannot have a right view of the Father. We cannot have God without believing in Jesus. John 14, verse 6. Let me if I put these up. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. John 12.44. Then Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. That's crucial and absolutely vitally important. It is only the Son who can represent and reconcile men to the Father. And that's why being antichrist is so dangerous and so difficult. There's a temptation to say, well, as long as you've got faith and you've got faith in God, that's what we're looking for. But then you have to say, well, who? Who is God? What is God? I don't know God. You can't know God. I know Jesus. And because Jesus is God, I know God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. God, the one and only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. I think that's a great verse, John 12. When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, 
but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. And that's why that whole teaching is just so vital and so important. So the Antichrist is somebody who gives us false teaching, who tells lies that takes away from Jesus so that we do not see God. And in that sense, the Antichrist or Antichrist, that does include Mormonism. It does include Islam. It does include Hinduism. It does include Christianity, which denies Christ. Now, you may say, how can Christianity deny Christ? The churches are full of Antichrists. That's, um, we say here, the Antichrist belonged to the church. That's what John is arguing. That's what he says. They, they went out from us, verse 19, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. John Calvin says this, For certainly it serves more to disturb the weak when anyone among us professing the true faith falls away than when a thousand aliens conspire against us. The first time I was really challenged in my faith was not when a non-Christian came and had a go at me about it. The first time I was really challenged in my faith was when somebody who was a friend who'd been part of my conversion renounced her faith. That is gut-wrenching when that happens. Or when people in the church, we've seen it here in this church, you'll see it in many churches, people who profess faith, people who stand up and preach, and then you meet them five years down the road and say, I've been through that phase. I don't believe it anymore. I've got nothing to do with it. Now, if you had admired them, if you were part of their fellowship, if you had prayed with them, it really, there's probably nothing causes you to doubt more than that. The Antichrist will very often belong to the church, and we'll see in a moment how we recognize that and how we deal with that. I think we have a real threat to the gospel in our culture. Firstly, because of, i put up there, relativism and pluralism, we allow Antichrist within the church. And what we mean by that, relativism is, and pluralism is kind of, well, that's what's true for you, that's what you believe, that's what's important. And what that means is you then can't challenge anyone. You then can't disagree with anyone. Now, I don't, I'm not arguing. I don't think, I think it's entirely wrong for us to be afraid of Islam or to hate people who are Muslims. The very opposite. We should love Muslims. The same with heretics at the church. Same with, we, I, I, it's not about classifying people and excluding people. It's just having the guts and having the understanding and having the courage and having the love to say to people, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. This, these, these two things just do not connect. That's not how it works. Be willing to listen, but be willing to challenge. I mean, you may say, well, that doesn't work. That's, you know, in our relativistic, pluralistic culture, that's not right. It's nasty. I was visiting a Muslim home, and afterwards, the man of the house said, we, we had a big argument about who Jesus was. And afterwards, he said, David, I like you, my brother. You are a fundamentalist like me. <laughs> that was... I said, okay, please don't pass that one around too much. But, but I mean, we, we both knew and, to, and were able to, I mean, you were able to talk and connect and say, because we believe things. And I think when you're saying we believe about Jesus Christ, relativism and pluralism really, really, oh, well, we've got to go to a meeting, we've got to be nice to people. Well, yes, you have to be nice to people, though the Bible never mentions the word nice, but you can still challenge people people will say, well, if you challenge me, I'll take it personally, I'll go in the huff, and that's not nice. Well, and then you just have to say, grow up. 
because the, the, it, it's not about you and me and how we feel about one another. You can, you know, if people believe things that are ludicrous, if people believe things that are demonic, or if people believe things that take them away from Christ, then when, when you have the opportunity, you do challenge on that. It does matter what you believe. I think also because of individualism, we undermine the authority of the church. In fact, we don't like the idea of authority. And what that does is it encourages the antichrists who are able to just say they're part of the church, or they just go off and form their own. So you get numerous groups all over the place. Virtually all the, the sects, S-E-C-T-S, in the Western world have come out of evangelical Christianity. Virtually all of them. Because people are told, here's a Bible. You can understand it yourself. You can do it yourself. So someone reads the Bible. They think, I don't like that bit. So if you're Judge Russell, you think, I don't like the teaching about hell. I don't like the teaching about Jesus being the Son of God. So I'll just reinvent it. And I'll announce that we're witnesses to Jehovah. And that's how you get Jehovah's Witnesses. And there's an enormous danger that people say, well, I'm, I'm just going to find this myself. No. No, we, we collectively do things together. So that's why John says it's important that we remain us, that we remain in fellowship with like-minded Christians. Now, as I say, this is deeply, deeply unpopular. When I spoke, the last time I spoke at a Muslim Christian meeting, the Muslims applauded. And Muslims came up to me afterwards, and my favorite was a lady who came up, complete with the burqa and the whole works, and she said, David, do you really, really believe in a sovereign God? in the Bible is the word of God, in God as creator in heaven and hell. And she said, I said, I do. And she said, David, you're almost a Muslim. And I, I said to her, maybe you're almost a Christian. But, we got, but at that meeting, there was a Christian from another church who stood up and he was really angry with me. How dare you say that Christians are right and Muslims are wrong? And I said, well, what if it's true? What if it's true that Jesus is the only way? I said, Muslims deny that Jesus is the son of God. Now, I said, I'm quite happy for the Muslim evangelist who's up on the platform here with me to say that. What I'm not happy with is someone to stand up and say, we both believe the same thing, really. No, we don't. We don't both believe the same thing. And it just, but it's incredible how offensive that is. I, I think, I can think I've got people get up and walk out of church when you try and teach that because they think you're some kind of right-wing bigot. But you're not. You're just trying to teach the Bible. You're not politicizing things. You're just teaching the Bible and teaching about Jesus. And there are people who just don't want that. Jesus says, I came to bring a sword. They don't want that kind of Jesus. They want their own personal Jesus. So we have to remain. We remain in fellowship with like-minded Christians. Now, how do we know? Because there are plenty of people who are going to be religious teachers who are going to say, and this, of course, is what the cults do. We are the only people who are right. So is it not incredibly arrogant? How do we know what's right? Well, he talks about the anointing. Verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Now, what's the anointing? Now, I put up there three Greek words because he uses them, and it's really important to see how he plays with words. Christos, Christ, Chrisma, the anointing, and Christoi, Christians. So what he's saying is that Christ gives the Chrisma which leads to Christoi. Christ gives the anointing, which leads to us being Christians, following him. 
There are two safeguards against error, the apostolic word and the anointing spirit. Isaiah 59, 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit who is in you and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your children or from the mouth of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. This is an astonishing thing. When you become a Christian, you are not dependent upon belonging to an organization. When I say that about, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the thing about the Jehovah's Witnesses against me is the faith is in the organization. It's not in God. But when you become a Christian, you receive the anointing. And that anointing is in two ways. It is the anointing spirit, and it's the word that comes from God. Now, what that anointing does, you see the, the Christos, Charisma, Christoi, uh, it's, I, I think that's just a great thing. You get this charisma, and, and it is how we get the words charismatic, it is how we, how we get the words charisma. We get this from Christ, and that makes us like Christ. Now, what it brings also is it brings knowledge and perseverance. Verse 20 to 21, all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. There is no enlightened elite on whom the rest depends. You will never ever say, or you should never ever say, I believe because my priest said so, or I believe because David said so. That would be one of the stupidest statements you would ever make in your life. How do we know? We know because of the spirit he has given us and because of the word. Now, some people immediately say, ah, I don't need to be taught. That's how the cults start. John is not saying that because what is he doing? He's writing a letter that's teaching people. These are not ignorant and stupid people. He's teaching them. So you don't turn around and say, he's teaching us that we don't need to be taught. He's not saying that everyone gets the, their doctrine by a direct hotline to God. I don't need the Bible. God tells me what's right. If he did, there would be no need for this letter, or indeed there would be no need for the whole New Testament. The fact is that what God's anointing does is as we receive God's word, as we interact with God's word, it makes such a difference to us. To be honest, when a non-Christian says, I read the Bible and I find it really boring, don't be shocked at that. That's probably true and probably normal. But when you have God's spirit within you, this is God's word that the spirit has inspired and it just, it changes absolutely everything. And what John is saying is, you don't need this special group to teach you. What you've got is you've got God's word and you've got God's spirit and that's it. You know. And there's, there's, you, therefore you have to keep the word and that's where the perseverance comes in. Where there's to be uh, a continual ongoing. It's not so much learning new truth but learning more deeply and practicing the truths we know. We have been taught by the Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 34, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. It's like when we have a fellowship group, and let's say one of the elders or myself is are involved in leading it, you're not there as participants who are there with a school teacher who's sitting with the right answers going, okay, I'll tick them for getting that right. You're not passing an exam. But your knowledge of God and your experience of God's Word will be just as enlightening and revealing to me as, as mine might be to you. That's, just one of, that's part of the, the great dynamic of the body of Christ. We, uh, but we have to keep on going. 
The devil wants to take us away from God's word, and we just have to keep on keeping on. That's a cliche I know, Coco, keep on keeping on. But that's what we have to do, and, and God's word will sustain us and guide us and help us. He says here, there, there, is, there is persecution that is coming. There is trouble that is coming. And so he says, you've got to remain. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. You do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it taught you, remain in him. That's one of the difficulties. When he, when he talks about leading you away, he uses the word planetary, from which we get the term planets, because they had this idea that the planets wandered in the heavens. And he's saying, these people are trying to make you wander away like the planets. Instead of having your feet rooted and established on earth, you're up in the sky. And it's not a compliment. And sometimes we find ourselves as Christians being blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. But we have to persevere and not be led astray. And sometimes that's hard because sometimes people whom you like, people whom you love, people whom you trust, sometimes they will go in a certain direction and within yourself and as you read God's Word, you know that that's not what the Word says. And it's really tough to say, no, I'm not going there. It's really tough to say, I'm sticking with God's word. All men, says Jesus, will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Hebrews 3.14 says, we've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Because isn't that what happens to many of us? And isn't that true of some of you here as Christians, that you had this incredible confidence when you began as a Christian? It wasn't a confidence in yourself. It was a confidence in God and in his word. But what the devil has done over the years is chip that away and chip that away and chip that away so that it's now so weak that you could be pulled away. You could be drawn away. You don't want to serve Christ. You're discouraged and downbeat in his church. You're battered and bruised. And you are, your, your anchor on the Word of God is just about ripped up. And you're, you're going to go adrift. You're going to go astray. And that's what John is saying. He's saying, don't be deceived by occult-type demands for new experience. Don't deny the relationship that Jesus has already given you. And he's challenging us. You decide. And let me finish with that, this, this kind of decision that we have to make to God's Word. If you're not a Christian... Do you want to be in Christ? If you are a Christian, do you want to remain in Christ? Do you want to grow in Christ? Do you want to learn more of Christ? He has his word and his spirit that he gives to us. So it's very simple. You ask the spirit to fill you, to guide you, and to, ve to reveal to you Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us. It's so easy for us to be bigots. It's so easy for us to be arrogant and self-righteous and proud. It's so easy for us to be cowards, to give in to the relativism and the emotional blackmail of the culture around us. It's so easy for us to be discouraged. It's so easy, O oh Lord, to 
hide, to turn away, to curl up and go to sleep. Forgive us when we do that and help us to see Jesus and to live for Jesus and to worship Jesus. And Lord, I pray for our Muslim friends and the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and all the different religions, for people in churches who have become religious and have not understood you or got you. I pray that you would help us to show with all the love and compassion that is possible who you are. I pray for people who've given up on religion altogether because they see the confusion and the divisiveness. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to show them that we too are atheists in that sense. We don't believe in the gods of this world. We don't believe in the idols. But we do believe in Jesus. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us not to drift, not to wander, not to become tired of your word, not to become arrogant, not to think that we know it, not to look to so-called spiritual elites, not to be deceived by false signs and wonders, but just to receive your anointing and to walk in Christ and to remain in Christ. For we ask it in your name. Amen.